This is the whole chapter, uh, 58 verses, dedicated to the topic of resurrection, uh, which makes a lot of sense uh, in the season of Easter uh, that we are continue uh, that we continue to be in. Um, uh, I know Beth uh, seemed to think it was a tough chapter uh, to do a children's uh, sermon on. Uh, just wait till we get to the Song of Songs. Uh, it's going to get uh, really interesting at that point, and uh, can't can't wait for that series. Uh, I might be out for a while after that. <laughs> Um, let's start with prayer and something serious, and then and then get to, uh, get into matters here. Heavenly Father, we uh, we come and we are thankful for the beauty uh, that surrounds us. Uh, your creation is glorious, and it speaks to us. Uh, the weather is uh, glorious today, and we give you thanks for that. We give you thanks for our children uh, who bring delight to us who bring joy to us. And we thank you for VBS and for this church uh, and what it is doing for these children. God, we pray today that as we enter this time of worship together, uh, that you indeed uh, speak to us, that you uh, open our hearts and that we might open our hearts and and that we uh, get real with ourselves and with you and perhaps even with some others. And Lord... um, I pray that uh, in this moment uh, that you use me as your vessel uh, to speak your word to this congregation. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Um, a very quick review of what's been going on. One, in case you uh, were not here in the previous weeks, and two, in case you forgot. Uh, We are in chapter 15 indeed, and the first few uh, verses of it give us a very clear definition uh, of the gospel in my mind. Uh, It's, uh, well, it's it's the five points that I've said uh, for a few weeks in a row, and that is there is this Christ, right? There's an anointed one, a king that has been awaited and now uh, has arrived And not only uh, has this Christ arrived, but uh, point two is that this Christ died. He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then he began to appear to a bunch of people. And uh, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians uh, at the end of this very long letter uh, is that uh, you all, Corinthians, you, you believed this gospel. But somewhere along the way, there's a few pieces of it that you didn't quite get. Or, or it didn't make sense in the ways that I thought it would make sense to you. And so he goes on and he, 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 in verse 12, which is what we talked about last week, he raises the problem. And he says, if, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... Well, then how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? And um, I'll I'll be honest, actually, last week's sermon was harder for me than I think this week's sermon will be. And the reason is, it felt a little uh, academic or wonky or like there's this issue that they dealt with that we might not exactly deal with, which is that some of them were running around with a different idea of, of what the whole gospel meant than most of us really do. And so for them, to kind of give it to you in a, a quick nutshell here, um, 
in Corinth at this time, these are, these are uh, pagans. Uh, these are, are Romans who uh, are probably uh, living a life of, well, a life that's, I don't know if it's all that different from ours. I, who knows, uh, frankly. But they're, they're at the very least serving uh, the gods uh, of the Roman pantheon. We'll say it that way, right? And in this, uh, they have to make sacrifices to the gods, right? And so they know something or, uh, about the sacrificial system that they were used to, right? And so why would they make a sacrifice to the god or to the gods that they served? Well, they would probably do it so that uh, it, it might rain uh, or they might have a good day or uh, something uh, or to, to keep the god from being angry, Something, something like this, right? And so when they hear that Jesus died, right, and Jesus is a, a, a sacrifice, they might be thinking to themselves, well, frankly, and this is kind of how I want to start things off here, they're thinking too small. They're thinking a little too personally, frankly, about what it all means for Jesus to be this sacrificial person for them. They're thinking a little too local because maybe they're thinking, well, if, if we offer a sacrifice uh, to, to the gods here, well, then uh, they will protect our city. And uh, we, uh, as a city, won't uh, have some sort of fire sweep through. The, off, the opposite would often happen uh, in the ancient world where uh, a fire would sweep through. This is exactly what Nero does to the Christians, by the way. A uh, fire sweeps through uh, a city, and then they say, well... It's probably because you weren't offering enough sacrifices and, and the gods got mad at you. And, oh yeah, by the way, the Christians, they don't serve those gods, so it's their fault. Right? That, that, if, if you didn't know, that's how it worked with Nero and, and why Nero could uh, dump that issue onto the Christian people in Rome. And so they're probably thinking too personally about this. They're probably thinking too locally about this. And uh, they're probably thinking uh, in a way that is too time-bound to their own situation. And what Paul wants to do is he wants to break all of those categories and he wants to say, no, what has happened in Christ, this is universal in nature. This is far beyond you and me. This is something that the world itself has been waiting for for all of history. It's global in nature, and it is pan-historical. It spans uh, the, the, the uh, whole of history from the very beginning of it all to the very end of it all. And Paul wants to say, that's what's happening in the Christ event. When Christ dies and is raised again from the dead... This isn't just about you having a good day, <laughs> you spilling your latte and getting frustrated and, 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 and God's trying to keep you from that sort of event happening. No, it's about God solving the deepest rooted issues that our world faces, issues that have existed from the span of time. And how does Paul do this? He points very specifically to the resurrection. He doesn't point, by the way, notice this whole chapter is not about Christ's death. It's about Christ's resurrection and the significance of that piece. And when he points to Christ's resurrection, 
what he is then able to do is he able, he's able to point both backward, I guess in your view, backward and forward in history, right? Backward toward Adam, forward toward the consummation of everything. Jesus didn't just die, he was indeed raised again. And Paul then theologizes about the implications of what this might mean for the Corinthian people. And through the resurrection, he ties the beginning to the end, and he tells a far bigger story than the Corinthian people were telling. Their story, as I already said, was just simply too small. It was too personal and too local and too time-bound And Paul wants to tell the story of human history. And he does it in just a few verses here. And so if you'll open back up to 1 Corinthians 15, we'll read and I'll I'll show you what's happening in this passage. In verse 20, he begins where we ended last week. Last week, I I included this verse so that we ended kind of on a high note. uh, And we'll read it again. It says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, right here again, we're talking about resurrection, and he's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, those who have died. He is the first fruits of that. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Who is that man that has brought the death? Well, in case you don't know your biblical history well enough, he goes on to make it very clear in the next verse, He says, as in Adam, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All he's got to do is say the name Adam, and he he, uh, opens up a whole uh, can of worms or a whole story that we all know quite well. He he, he, He draws us back to the beginning of everything to when sin enters the world, to when, and he'll name this explicitly, to when death enters the world, right? To when that tree of life gets shut off and and the promise that God makes about if you eat from this tree, you will die. Well, God makes good on that promise with Adam first. And we see uh, in this way what Paul is doing He's drawing us back to the beginning, but he's also pointing us toward the end of it all. He's saying we should expect something more. And that from that time, from Adam, God has been in the works and making things right again. He's been putting things back together. This is what God does. So coming back to 1 Corinthians 15 here, we read in verse 23, but each in his own order. And so he says there's an order to how all of this happens. He says Christ is the first fruits, right? So we expect Christ to be raised from the dead first. And then at his coming, it makes very clear how this all kind of pans out, At Christ's coming, those who belong to Christ, well, they too will be raised from the dead. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father 
after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. My guess is we were all on board with a lot of this, and then it starts to get into some choppier waters at some point here. And then we have a few verses, and there's a few to follow, where it's a little less clear exactly what Paul's trying to say to us, what's really happening. He, he lays out this clear timeline, yes. There's the first fruits of it all. Christ raises from the dead. There is Christ's return, and then there's the resurrection of the general dead. And we all, at this point, those who are in Christ, he will say, well, we are gathered up with him. But there's this part that he talks about here that before all of this happens and before the end comes, well, he, not, he must, he, uh, Jesus, uh, must deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, authority, and power. And then he says, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And this sounds just, maybe it doesn't sound odd to you. It sounds odd to me, at least a little bit anyway. Do you know, he's quoting here, right? It's a very clear quotation from two possible places. I, I think actually he's pulling from both and kind of fusing it into one. It's Psalm 110, verse 1. You can put that in your margin there. And Psalm 8, verse 6. Both of these are messianic psalms, meaning they are about uh, both a Messiah that is, David, uh, and a Messiah to come, that is, a Davidic Messiah, this long-awaited king. Both of them very much have kingly overtones. This is about establishing a new kingdom, and so when he talks about, in verse 24, delivering this kingdom to God, well, he's, he's recalling all of these Jewish expectations that come to us out of the Psalms. And Jesus, well, Jesus is fulfilling them. Only he's fulfilling them in a slightly different way than was probably expected, and in a way that is bigger. And I've said this a few times, but the bigger is that it's not just an issue of, uh, of some sort of like earthly rulers or authorities or powers that he's worried about. He, he at this point, personifies uh, darkness and he personifies evil and he personifies death. And he says that these things, these have run rampant for way too long. And it's these evil things, these enemies, this is what needs to be destroyed. And this is what needs to be reconciled. And he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And here again, he's, he's pulling from Psalm uh, 110 verse 1 and Psalm 8 verse 6 and he's quoting it a few times. 
And he's talking about what needs to be subjected to Christ. Right? What needs to be subjected. And then if you didn't hear it when my daughter read these verses, if he doesn't say subjection like once or twice, he, he says it six times in a span of two verses. And it's clear what needs to happen, right? That this world is out of order. It, it's, it, it's in a state of chaos. And it needs to be reordered. It needs to be put into, under subjection to Christ's rule and reign. And this is the whole thing. When Christ dies and is, is raised again from the dead, even that's not quite enough. He is then ascends to the Father and sits at the right hand of the Father where he rules and he reigns. This is part and parcel of all of this. And at some point we await the fullness of it. We await that all of these enemies, the darkness and the pain and the sadness and, and, and of course, most of all, death, we await all of this to be defeated and to be subject to Christ. And so he goes on and he says, when it says that all things are put in subjection, it is plain that it is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And it starts to get dizzy at this point. And he says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. And then God may be all in all. And that's the part we need to get to. That God may be all in all. Because that's the end of it all. Is that there are all of these other gods roaming around. All of these other idols out there that need to be put in their proper place. These enemies that need to be defeated. And it all needs to be reordered and given back to God in a state that is similar but different from what we found in the garden, where God creates the earth and takes chaos and turns it into order. Well, so again, at some point in a future space, he will do the same. And this is the big story that Paul is trying to tell. And this is exactly what Paul is trying to get these Corinthians to see is that Christ's uh, death and resurrection, it has far more to do with the grand sweep of history than it does with whether or not you got cut off in traffic and now you're frustrated because of it or something like that. In 1 Corinthians 15... <clears throat> Paul comes along and he must retrain the Corinthian people about what Good Friday means and what Easter Sunday actually means. He's talking to a people who believe in the events themselves. They just don't have a big enough story in front of them. And he wants to dig down deep and he wants to get to the fundamental nature of what's wrong with this world. And there are some things that are wrong with this world. There are some things that are really right with this world. 
When I walk out onto my back patio and I look around uh, at the spring weather and I see the flowers blooming and I see children laughing, like these are all really good things. And these good things, they grow up side by side with the fundamentally wrong things about the world, right? It's the wheat and the tares growing up together. And at some point, the fundamentally wrong things need to be dealt with. And Paul is saying that in Christ's death and resurrection, he deals with them, and then we have the first fruits of the fix. Jesus' death and resurrection come to fix the fundamentally flawed nature of the world we live in. Jesus came to redeem the broken world. He came to take what is causing our pain and our hurt and our sadness and to fix it so that it does not happen again. He came to reorder a disordered world, a world that is filled with chaos, so that it fits together as it should always have. And how does Paul go about doing this? How does he try to persuade these Corinthians that this is indeed the case? Well, he tells the narrative from Eden all the way to the end. And he evokes Adam's name. And he says that some of us are living in Adam. Actually, he says all of us are. This is just our fundamental nature. You don't have a, a choice in the matter. You are born in Adam. We're humans, is another way of simply saying that, right? But then he says there's this other category, right? There's in Adam, but there's also now, because of Christ, in Christ. And the resurrection, a real resurrection that a bunch of people have witnessed to has happened. And Paul's saying, because of that fact, there is now this new category that's possible out there. And there's in Adam, and there's in Christ. And these two things sit before you as options. What do they mean? I think they mean two things. The first thing is this. I spent a few moments talking about the kingdom nature to this passage, right? It, it's, it's a very much uh, political in its nature when it talks about uh, delivering over rulers and authorities and powers. This is political speech. Now, not American politics, please. Good grief. Uh, it's, it's of a different nature. It is talking about kingdoms, though, right? Which is just another word for nations or, you know, whatever you want to add in there. It's kingdom language, and when we talk about a Messiah, we're talking about an anointed one. We're talking about a king who rules a kingdom. And so, yes, we're talking about kingdom language. And he says, Paul says, that once everything is accomplished, once Jesus has had his way and the subjection of all those things has happened, well, every rule and authority and power, well, they are put under Jesus' feet. They are put in subjection to him. And he becomes the ruler. And then he hands that over to God. And then all is indeed made right. The language of Messiah and Christ, of course, is that of a ruler as well. 
It's a king. And these verses, I already said as well, are quoting from the Psalms that are talking very much about a Davidic king. One that was and one that's expected. And so, yeah, this is kingdom language. And we have those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And Paul is putting before them, which kingdom do you belong to? To which kingdom are you a citizen? To this earthly kingdom and Adam and all that entails? Or to the kingdom of God? This is what Jesus spends half of his ministry talking about. Like, what does it mean to belong to the kingdom of God? And here Paul is very quickly and simply saying, which kingdom are you part of? The second thing in Adam and and in Christ's language, uh, I think, refers to is, uh, uh, is, uh, it's identity language, right? What's our identity? Is a big word these days. Identity. In Christ means that we have a new identity. Every person alive is already in Adam. We have that identity. We are humans, and the, uh, the humanities, I spent my, uh, a lot of time in the humanities department uh, at a, 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 an inst- a higher ed institution, and the humanities job, if it has one job, is to understand what it means to be fundamentally, fundamentally human, uh, which I think is a noble task. Uh, it's frankly a really enjoyable task, uh, and it's, it's a question that can never be really fully answered. But there's a reason scripture is uh, people come back to it time and again, and not just Christians, by the way, non-Christians as well, because what we find on the pages of scripture is this uh, very clear, and, well, sometimes not as clear as we might want it to be, but it's, it's clear enough uh, understanding of what it means to be human in all of its glory and all of its despicableness, Right? The Old Testament is great, New Testament too, but is Old Testament in particular is great at giving us flawed heroes. People who you might think we should look up to, David's a great example, but in fact they have all of these issues going on underneath the surface, right? And this is part of what it means to be human. And so we have this, this book that gives us a very clear window into what it means to be in Adam. But then the same book offers us this vision of what in Christ could be. What that part could be. What what adopting that identity might look like. This new identity in Christ is something that is given to us. In the death and the resurrection of Christ, we are invited into this new identity. In Romans, Paul uses different language. He uses adoption language. And he says that we are adopted as heirs to this kingdom. Or in 2 Corinthians, he uses different language altogether. And he says that, uh, quote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and there's that same language, in Christ, right? If you are in Christ, then he is a new creation. You have a new identity. And the old you has passed away. Behold, the new you has come. 
And so I would submit to you that what's happening in 1 Corinthians 15 in this in Christ uh, versus in Adam language, we are being offered a, well, uh, opportunity to be citizens in a new kingdom and to adopt a new identity. What do we do with all this? A few things. It's quite likely that some of you have come this morning bearing the weight of the world upon you. What I mean by that is this, is that um, not the part of me walking out my back patio and hearing the birds chirp and, and, and the goodness of life is just, you know, washing over you. That's not where you're at right now. You're in that other spot where you're seeing the difficulties and the terrible nature of this world up close and personal, and it's really hard to get away from that. I could give you any number of stories at this point, but I don't know that I need to. My, my guess is if you're in that spot right now, you know what you're feeling. You know exactly what you're going through. And what I would want to say to you and what I think Paul wants to say to you in 1 Corinthians 15 is to remember the big story. Remember the big story. Remember how it began and how it's going to end. Remember the promises that are in there. Where all of this is leading toward. Remember the hope. Remember that the enemies, they will be subject to Christ at some point. And maybe you want to make those enemies people, and sometimes they are. But usually, those enemies are things like death. Things like pain. Things like a broken past. Broken heart. And God promises us in the Christian story that he will deal with all of those and that we are heading toward a vision of the world in which all of that is subject to Christ who hands that over to God and sets it all in the order that it should be set into. Maybe this morning that's not you. But maybe you are the person that, like these Corinthian people, you've shrunk down the gospel into something that is, well, maybe it's, it's similar to that uh, free vending machine that you wish existed in the world, where you could just walk up to it, punch a button, and get whatever you wanted out of it. And you see God as the Santa Claus God who you just are supposed to ask, and, and he comes down the chimney and gives you whatever you want. And that's not what we find in the big story. And so to you too, I would, I would say, remember the big story. Remember how all of this works, that God is not fixing your latte problems. He's fixing the fundamental problems of the world. And lastly, to all of us. I think we should all leave this place today asking two questions. What kingdom are you living in? And what is your identity? 
What kingdom are you living in and for? And what is your identity? Are you in Adam and remain in Adam and stuck in Adam because, you know what, being a human, I'm good at that. (laughs) Or are you ready to live in Christ and to take on a challenge that is impossible in this life, yes, but is worthy of your try? Will you choose to live in Christ rather than living in your Adam self. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're a God who is redeeming the world. The redemption we find in Christ on the cross Well, it is fulfilled at some point in the future when Christ returns again and the first fruits of that resurrection become fruit for us. At which point, Lord, we await all of the goodness that you have. We await that time where you take the the pain and the sadness and the sorrow take the rejection, you take the heartache, you take all of that away, and you replace it, Lord. You replace it with something good. You will replace it with your love, and you replace it with love for one another, and you set the world right again. That kingdom, Lord, is the kingdom we all desire to live in. We all know that. Of course we desire that. But God, it is our job to begin this very day to live as those people, to be those kinds of people in this fallen world. And that's a tough task. But God, that is why you give us your Holy Spirit. And that is why you give us your church. And Lord, may we encourage one another to be more and more like you, that we might live in Christ and not in Adam. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll stand with me, we'll sing one final song together, after which point...
pray that that was a prayer for you. Spirit of God, the living God.